Welcome to Your Other Mother, stories of early queer family making. This episode tackles the history of queer people's ability to form the families they choose in Washington State, where I grew up. In this episode, I've spoken to a number of legal practitioners who have worked in this field over the past 40 years to share the history of how queer people became able to legally create their own families in Washington State. This includes Washington State Supreme Court Justice Mary Yu, attorney and former court commissioner Eric Watness, and advocate and attorney Barbara Wexler, in that order. Queer people's ability to form their own families and have those families be legally recognized was incredibly fraught for much of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. This continues to be true today, and there is backlash occurring right now to attempt to make it even harder for people who don't fit into the cisgender heterosexual mold to create their own families. In creating this project, I've been struck by the huge strides that the gay liberation movement has been able to achieve over the past 50 plus years, and struck by the intensely cyclical nature of the struggle. The ability of queer people to form legal families, and specifically to create legal relationships to their children, is thankfully easier and somewhat more legally secure now than it was in the late 1980s and early 1990s when I was born. This is due in part to legal changes and in part to cultural changes that have normalized queer parenting. Today, we'll address this and more and hear from some really smart, sensitive, compassionate folks to speak about this history. I hope you'll enjoy and learn something. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I um, just to start, I will I wanted to talk a little bit about the, you know, your history with uh, overseeing same sex adoption finalizations. Um, I did read in a KUOW piece that you had estimated that you'd um, overseen about 1400 at the time of that article, which I think is a few years old, uh, which is an enormous number. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about why it was important to you to do that as a public servant and what um, what led you to to the adoption space. Yeah, you know, the person really responsible for getting me um, involved to do these is really an attorney named Barbara Wexler. And Barbara is the person who just happened to come to me after I was appointed to the bench in 2000, who just said, would you ever be willing to do these? And I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, I would love to. And um, I happened to look up then the statute in terms of adoptions, and there was nothing prohibiting adoptions. And so um, the circumstance, I think it was frankly a couple from Snohomish who did not feel comfortable uh, appearing in front of the judicial officers there because they felt while somebody might actually do it, that you could tell that the judicial officer had some personal feelings about it that were not necessarily positive. And so the couple, a couple just didn't want to do that. And then Barbara had some bad stories of judges who then just wouldn't do it. So once she shared that with me, I thought, are you kidding? What an honor. This is terrific. And as I started to do them, I have to say that it only got better in the sense that I saw how important it was not only to perform a legal function, but there was a lot more going on in terms of public recognition of family. And then we started to just make it an event in the sense that I always said, invite your family. Like, don't you have two people here? Like, invite your family, invite whoever you want, bring your mother, your father, your grandfather. But this is a huge event. And it became that. Um, and so it just, it just happened. I mean, Barbara then brought a lot of, of petitions 
there were a couple of other attorneys that then began to join um, in the same effort. And so it was just really purely coincidental and driven by need more than anything else. That's really amazing. I Her name has come up in my research. Um, do, you, are you, do you know Eric Watness? He was a... Um, he was a commissioner. That's right. He was a commissioner. So he was my parents' adoption attorney. Um, yes. Yeah, so he, and then he, as I, I interviewed him a few weeks ago, he mentioned that he had then um, overseen a lot of adoption finalizations, which I, and, you know, he spoke in similar glowing ways about how meaningful it was to him. Um, but he, he too noted that, you know, particularly more in the early nineties and, and continuing into the nineties and two thousands, that there are some court officials who just, you know, through their own political commitments or what have you, um, were pushing back, which it's just so harrowing to contemplate, you know, as the prospective adoptive parent, how your, your future is in the hands of one just judge. I mean, it's really, or, you know, one commissioner. So uh, yeah, it's, I, I love to hear that you made it something that is, you know, sacred and (laughs) celebratory. I I think that's amazing. And I know there was so much, Annalise, that, I, I mean, I just have to say, Again, for some, it was just a straightforward thing, um, but for others, it was an opportunity to invite parents maybe to move into the world of acceptance, that this is not um, anything but something serious and that it represented a commitment to be a family. And I remember, you know, there are so many stories, but I remember one in particular where the father uh, came, um, not the father of the child to be adopted, but the father of a parent who just was never really accepting of the relationship. But that moved him to a place um, when I just would always say, you know, the most important thing is to love who your children love. And that just simply, boom, hit him. And he was so filled with joy and love for his daughter at that moment that it became a healing moment for them. And I think that's what it represented. It really did. It was not symbolic. It was real. And it then offered an avenue for people to get where they were stuck. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, it makes total sense. I mean, so I had a law school colleague who, as she said this phrase sort of offhandedly, but it's really stuck with me. Um, she said, legal dignity often precedes interpersonal dignity. You know, with the idea being legal recognition of various rights can can spur that social change. And I just, I, I think it, but I think it sometimes can flow the other way, but that, that, really, I feel like this is an instance where it really does, it really goes to show how just those, you know, in the grand scheme, you know, somewhat straightforward legal recognition uh, of of a legal relationship between people, three or more people, just can have a snowball effect. And and yeah, to, to normalize, to, you know, in, inspire compassion or care from, from their extended family. So that's pretty amazing. Great. I could it's see great. why it would be so uh, rewarding to, you know, to do this work because that's just incredible. I mean, you really, you, you're just, and you're, and it's like, you get to be present when someone's kind of starting the next chapter in their life. That's pretty powerful. Well, and the thing is, is that I run into people all the time and our community is no different than any other, right? People will say, well, gosh, you know, we split up, we're divorced, but you know what? We both took care of the kids and how important it was to have legal rights. And many of them have often said it was so good to know we could split up, but nobody was going to split up our family. And I had legal rights to still be a parent with my child. And I thought, well, that's the whole point, right? It's a legal relationship um, that you have with your child, regardless of what happens between the two uh, adults here are the two parents. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Well, so what do you, so, you know, I, I do know a little bit about the legislative history or, you know, kind of the 
legislative and the practical history of same-sex adoption in Washington, Western Washington particularly. And, my, and Eric Watness mentioned that it's his understanding that sometime in the 80s, the legislature actually revised the adoption statute to, I think they were they were engaging in like a, a an overall attempt to kind of take out unnecessarily gendered language from a lot of the statutes, you know, like the things that said husband and wife, similar, you know, kind of antiquated language. And he mentioned that at some point, the adoption statute was revised to not say husband and wife anymore. It, it, it just said person, or I don't know what the exact terms are, um, and that it sort of unintentionally or inadvertently opened the door to some same-sex couples who, to actually now adopt. So I thought that was just so interesting. But um, so, you know, the legal history, I guess I'd be curious to hear also um, from your experience, you know, what were some of the biggest obstacles for same-sex couples looking to adopt? Was it the hostility of the bench? Was it cost? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your, your sense there. Yeah, gosh, you know, prior to 2000, I don't think that I was aware at all. I, I, I just wasn't. I mean, not having kids and um, not being on the bench didn't put me in the position to be in touch with obstacles to adoption or adoption at all. It just, just wasn't on my radar screen. And it wasn't until Barbara came to me that suddenly I thought, wait a minute, um, there were so many assumptions that it wouldn't be an issue. And I would say they weren't necessarily obstacles, but they were certainly a deterrent in terms of a hostile bench. Um, I would say a lot of people didn't have money to pay lawyers to do it, right? I mean, most people can't afford that. Um, I think there were others who um, didn't want social workers asking them questions or coming to do a home study. That to me just the whole time always bothered me of, of a home study because I thought to myself, gee, anybody having a kid, I didn't have a home study. Uh, you know, is your home safe? Is your home really good? Do you have space for a child to live in? And those were just such invasive questions that were asked of every couple. So to me, that would be a big deterrent as well as I think people thought, I don't know if I can do this. Um, I think at the time there were a lot of foreign adoptions in the sense that people were doing a lot of machinations around the law in the sense of one person made representations to Russia or to China that they were the only parent. And then it wasn't until they went and got this little baby, came back here, waited a couple of years to be safe and then went through a formal adoption proceeding. And I think, again, how many people could afford to do that? How many people could really figure that out? The majority could not. Then, um, once we got into what was known then in terms of these terms were artificial reproductive rights. And then people realized I can have the power to have a child myself, but then the whole legal connection to, well, who's the sperm donor and what rights do they have? And then we got a little while into the process of terminating their parental rights so that there wasn't going to be the ability for now a third party flying around to come in and say, I've got rights. On the other hand, people also said, no, we want to keep some rights and the three would parent and it would be okay. So I always took the position, the more the merrier, and that if kids could have four parents, that's terrific. I mean, who cares? So, you know, I think all of that, though, scared some people. So, so 
given where we're at right now, I mean, I lay awake at night worrying, and I have, frankly, since the 2016 election, um, worrying about what will happen to my legal relationship to my parents, what will happen to their legal relationship to each other. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if you, I guess, I'd, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts yeah. about how you see the current, you know, legislative attempts or the legislative attacks on LGBTQ people, um, how that might I- impact, fa- you know, more the legal treatment of family relationships in this context. Yeah, well, nothing will happen with yours. Nothing nothing will go backwards. I can say that in terms of anything that's been done is not going to be un. So in terms of your parents' legal relationship or your relationship to them, um, even as a beneficiary or an heir, nothing is going to change anything. What is worrisome um, is going forward in that sense, right? So those people who are deprived an opportunity to be married in certain states, it's horrifying to me, given the fact that the United States Supreme Court said this is a fundamental right. Everybody has rights to something fundamental as marriage, right? So suddenly a state having the authority to say, okay, we're not going to interfere with any existing marriage, but you can't do it in the state. That's very bothersome to me. Adoption papers, we always had people come from other states to be adopted with me. And the problem that they ran into is they would then go back to the home state and the clerk would refuse to accept it. Um, not because it was a court order from someplace else, but they said, we don't recognize same-sex adoptions here. And they would, would refuse to issue a new birth certificate. That was the issue. They said, no, we're not going to issue a new birth certificate. They had to give full faith and credit to a court um, order. United States Supreme Court finally stepped in in a case that nobody ever knew about um, that came out of, I believe it might've been Florida or Alabama, one of the Southern states, the United States Supreme Court said, no, you have to give full faith and credit to this order. Um, and that put an end to that. But gosh, it was, yeah, yeah. It was before I came to the Supreme Court. So it would have been before 2014. So maybe right in that era, it was a late decision. It wasn't something that was antiquated. It was an interesting decision. And I used to have a lot of papers um, related to this, except that we're in a temporary space. So I have everything boxed up. I don't have anything. Otherwise I would get it for you. I apologize. Um, but anyway, um, you know, so going forward, I think, is a problem. Um, and it's a problem that's very real for somebody who serves in the military, right? When you're transient, you're constantly moving around and you are going from state to state. So the threat is very real about where am I going to go to have my rights recognized maybe as a parent? Well, they have to recognize that right, but it might not mean that you have that right in the state to actually initiate it. Um and again, it, it's a little bit of a problem. So the way we did it then might be the way they're going to yeah. do it in the future is people will travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not to be too bleak and doom saying, but I mean, I just feel like this new court, it's got, it, it is truly an unknown quantity. They're they're eager and willing to overturn settled law. So I I don't think that, I mean, you know, look at Clarence Thomas's Dobbs. I mean, I, I it's, it's just galling the explicit, well, okay, I find it galling. <laughs> it's it's striking the uh, 
willingness this new court has to um, just really uh, strike out really aggressively to to disregard settled law. So I I mean when Dobbs came out and you know advocates started saying this is you know we should be concerned about Obergefell we can we should be concerned about Lawrence from Texas I don't think they're um, I don't think they're too far off base. So I, it does concern me. Um, yeah, I mean, it concerns me personally. I'm, I'm comforted to hear you say that. I, I too, I was kind of like, my, my one semester of family law, we talked about how it's nearly impossible to uh, dissolve an adoption. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, I'm probably safe. And they I'm- They won't dissolve an adoption, but they won't necessarily um, want to extend that right going forward. And again, they don't do it. In Florida, I don't think you can obtain a- same-sex adoption. Um, they're just not approving it. And there's so many different ways to get around it, right? Is well, gosh, the people who run our adoption agencies are all religious institutions. They have a moral objection to doing it. We're not going to question it. Well, it's a nice little neat way around doing something that you're obligated to do under the law. And, um, you know, it's, it's scary. It's really scary. And yet when I look at Washington State, you know, we've gotten it even um, buttoned up tighter with the right to marry. There really isn't a need to have an adoption because presumptively any child, right, is a child of the two. And yet there are people who are saying, oh, no, I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway because I might move to a different state. So this is kind of outside of just the context of same-sex adoption, but I am curious because it's something I've been coming up against and coming across in my in my work. Um, so I have never felt particularly, you know, I am adopted. My parents adopted me legally. And, um, but I've never, I've always felt kind of more affinity to fellow children of same-sex couples as opposed to just adoptees generally. And um, something that I've come across in the past few years is that there's a lot of discourse from adoptees that is really critical of adoption and really condemns our current system. And when I first encountered that discourse, I was frankly kind of taken aback because for me, my adoption has always you know, almost unequivocally been something that I feel a huge gratitude for and feel like really grateful and lucky that I have my moms. And, and as I mentioned, I, you know, I didn't really feel, I didn't relate to adoptees in the same way because my situation was so unique, but I have, have since come across a lot of this discourse and I, I try to engage with it in an, with an open mind and heart because I want to learn more about the experiences of adoptees. And um, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm curious if you've come across this uh, in your work or just uh, in in understanding the world of adoption and being involved in it. If you've come come up against this pushback, I guess against or pushback by adoptees against, I guess against the ways in which we think adoption is this unmitigated good, right? Yeah, only in the context of cross racial, cross racial adoptions, and then foreign adoptions in terms of what was done with Korean children. Um, you know, people taken totally out of a community and placed into a culture in which they would never, ever get to know their own selves. Um, but that's, I think, more complicated than just adoption. I have to admit that I have not made myself familiar with what the issue might be with just the concept of adoption. Um, so I don't know. Outside of the racial context, don't yeah, know. I think a lot of the, I think yeah, a lot of the critiques I have come across are you know very critical of transracial or cross-racial adoption in the ways that particularly white parents adopting children of color often do not serve their children of color with proper resources or support, right? The additional criticisms of adoption I've seen are really just that um, 
there's this idea that rather than push for adoption or resort to adoption, we should we should give more resources and we should support biological parents. And it's a really interesting, I find it really interesting because I think it it sort of reveals an inherent bias that biological family is better or more natural, right? Um, which is, I just, yeah, it's kind of interesting because I guess I, I, I see adoption as it could, you know, I think it's just case dependent, right? Um, I do think it's, it's a good thing that it exists because, you know, the other options of fostering or, you know, orphanages are not amazing right. options. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm just, I feel like I've been, uh, I think because I come at this from a really um, a, a perspective that's perhaps pro-adoption or biased toward adoption as a good, I've been trying to round out my, my knowledge and education. So I wondered if you, you know, see yeah. that or come across that. No, I would say the only things that I have heard and it doesn't have to do with whether adoption is good or bad. It's the method in terms of so many couples chose to go the route of um, fertilization as opposed to going to the foster care system. And part of it was right the fear of broken children, I think, sometimes, or not having enough infants, right? And so um, a lot of couples then would consciously choose who would be the donor, whether it would be anonymous or whether it would be somebody known. And so a lot of resources got spent in that area because it's very expensive to do that. But you know, the, the concern always was, what about the broken children left in the system? That's a responsibility for everybody, not just same-sex couples, but nevertheless, there's a lot of kids who need a home. Well, you know, having seen what you've seen and having, you know, worked in this space and presided over so many adoptions, what are your thoughts on what the future might hold for, you know, do you think in Washington, we're going to continue to just keep chugging along or, you know, I'd love to, not not asking you to predict the future, but what are, you, what are your thoughts on where we're headed? You know, I have no concerns about Washington state. I just don't, in a sense that, um, yeah, I don't have any concerns about Washington State. Do I have a lot of concerns about what's going on at the national scene? Absolutely. And the conflict that's going to occur, right? I, I mean, we're going back to old notions of federalism and what does it really mean to be part of a state and why is state law is so different than federal law? I don't think it's academic, but it's what I spend a lot of time thinking about is how is it that state Supreme Courts are going to protect their state's rights and the citizens of their states and their individual rights, right? We, we just can't get to the place where SCOTUS gets to decide these very important questions for Washington state. I think, yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen. I just think you have a legislature that's committed um, to protecting rights. I think you have a court right now that is very committed to individual rights and privacy. Our constitution enshrines privacy. So, um, it's never to say never. On the other hand, I would say Washington State, you're going to be pretty darn safe. Um, but uh, the lack of uniformity in the country is a real concern and should be a concern to every single American. Yeah. Right. I have read critiques, you know, a lot, there are some, you know, more radically leftist critiques of the push for gay marriage as a, as a, you know, normalizing and as a, an assimilationist approach to advancing and protecting queer people's rights. So I, 
at, in doing this project, I, I, I can't help but think about that in the context of same-sex adoption, because um, I do think a lot about how when I was growing up, all I wanted was for my family to seem normal, right? I just, I felt so inherently different having two moms and, uh, you know, knew almost no other kids who had same-sex parents. And so I always was striving to just normalize our family and prove how, how eminently normal we were and how we were no different than a straight family. And I think that's the pressure that a lot of children of same-sex couples may have, I, I suspect, that I hope is changing, right? But at least for me in the 90s and 2000s, that's how I felt. So my question is really, you know, what are your thoughts on the, I guess, critique or the perspective that um, same-sex adoption kind of functions in a similar way as same-sex marriage did to try and just, rather than create a society where queer folks are uh, allowed to exist in their queer selves, uh, the, rather the you know push for same-sex adoption is really just trying to recreate a heteronormative family that looks just a little bit different, right? Does yeah, that make sense? No, 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 it makes sense. I, I think that um, critique works in terms of marriage and, arra and arrangements of relationships, right, among adults. Clearly, um, there was this effort to assimilate and to make that the norm. And that's the problem, right? That is a serious problem. Um, when it comes to adoptions, though, I think it's really different in terms of real legal risks that someone could walk in your house and walk out with your child. You're talking about somebody who has no rights because children, no matter what we say, don't. They, they are still treated in so many ways like commodity. And um, which is why I would push against the other is to say it is almost reckless not to protect a relationship you have with your child um, in terms of protecting them in, in some way that there is protection for them. But, you know, I, I don't see um, that there's a good reason to not go through an adoption and still bring the, the critical analysis that that movement brings, which is don't make this life the norm. And I would agree with that completely. It, it should not be the norm. And it's too bad that we have to have legal arrangements for everything in society, but that's the way it functions. Um, when you live in a society of you know, rules and rights, you have to find a way to protect those rights. There just isn't the ability to just dissolve them and say, let's just be a free society. I, as much as that's ideal in, in our government and a rule-based society, I just think it's again, reckless to not afford the protections that a child is entitled to. A child is entitled to be supported. A child is entitled to an education. A child has certain entitlements that can't happen unless there are some legal arrangements in place to do that. Um, you know, you, you can't be sexually abused. You can't be the partner of a, an adult, right? I mean, it, it just is, there's just certain things that have to happen, which is why I think adoption, it does connect a child to an adult through an umbilical cord that actually brings certain protections. And I, I would support it hundred percent. I would push back against the other. And yet I accept the idea that we should not be saying white heterosexual families are the norm for us because they're not. But I don't know.
So my my first experience with the same gender adoption was with Lutheran Social Services. I'll never forget. Never forget going into court in the case. Um, it, we went to the ex-party department at the King County Superior Court, which then was just a office on the sixth floor. Um, there weren't even closed doors or anything like that. The uh, the judicial officer that we got was a visiting judge from Ellensburg, the Kittitas County. And when I saw that, we walked in there, I thought, oh, no, this is not going to go well. Um, but we had the home study. Everything was all done uh, ahead of time. We had the post-placement report. All the pieces were there. Um, and it was a finalization. And the judge was completely accommodating, acting like no big deal. And so um, he finalized the adoption and out the door we went. Um, and that was the that was the first known uh, uh, same gender adoption that I am aware of. I think it was, I think it was the first ones had done. I don't know that any others had had agencies. I heard reputedly that there had been a other one or two others, but mm -hmm. that was. Uh, Do you remember what year that might have been? When. Uh, somewhere between 1982 and 85, somewhere. Wow, in that that's pretty early. I mean, that's yeah. that's something I've been yeah. trying to um, dig yeah. around in the and records to to see. The um, the I think you could peg it fairly closely to the legislative change that legislature went through and removed gender language from a whole bunch of statutes, and one particular was the adoption statute, which identified who could be adoptive parents, a husband and wife, or a single person. I think there was a third criteria of the old statute, and they got rid of that, uh, that, that uh, marriage or um, single person uh, language, got rid of it and made it more general. And it was right after that came into effect that and so it was a it was a, a change in statute in order to uh, kind of update it, but there was no that I know of. There was no intention, and certainly no legislative history that said, "Well, we're going to allow same same gender adoptions." Um, um, we just used that and said, "Well, you know, here it is." <laughs> so. So Barbara, can you tell me a little bit about your experience with the adoption space and just tell me a bit about your history with this movement? Just personally, you know, I am a parent, uh, a lesbian in a marriage, of course, at this point. Uh, but uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter is your age. She was born in 1991. Oh, and cool. Yeah. So how did you and your partner at the time come to be your daughter's parents? Well, it, it was interesting. Neither my spouse nor I wanted to be pregnant. We we had traveled in Guatemala and fell in love with the children and the culture. So we ended up, and at that time, um, uh, private uh, domestic agencies were not open to same sex, but uh, you could do it uh, internationally. Uh, 
uh, do adoption. So we adopted uh, over the course of three years, two daughters. Uh, okay, I see. Who are now going to be 30 and 32. And um, uh, so that's that. That's my, uh, in, and in many ways, uh, that led to my focus on uh, adoptions. Because, uh, uh, but it began before that. Oh, okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, either your personal history with this adoption work or just in general, shed a little light on the history? At that time in the 80s and early 90s, if you looked at it nationwide, there were basically three ways that states were approving uh, same-sex adoptions. One, which was uh, a minuscule number, but certain states, I think Massachusetts may have been one of them, had explicit statutory authority. Uh, so that was one way, obviously, if there was a statute that explicitly permitted this. The second way it happened is um, people were getting approvals of maybe second parent adoptions. It would be contested in some way. So there was an appellate court decision permitting uh, same-sex adoptions. There were few, but only a few during those early years. Um, and then the third way, which is what happened with Washington, is that there was no explicit permission in the statute. There had been no uh, appellate court decisions. So what evolved was just a pattern of practice within the county superior courts, you, mostly in western Washington and King County, where um, uh, there was approval by usually commissioners or, or um, uh, if, if a judge was uh, requested, um, they were approving uh, same-sex adoptions based, and I'll talk to you the legal basis in a moment, and that, and that just developed without any explicit uh, appellate or statutory authority. Oh, that's interesting. So how did that end up affecting your actual practice on these cases? We were very under the radar during those early years. We did not want uh, publicity because we were just trying to figure out how to make all this happen in in King County. And sorry, remind me, what, what time period are we talking about here? It really began in, in about 1985, where the adoption statute was revised, and it had primarily very broad uh, definitions, and uh, the, uh, the county courts were given wide discretion to determine whether a, a particular adoption was in, you know, the overriding standard is the best interest of the child. So, um, for example, the, the definition of an adoptive parent in the statute was changed to any person who is legally competent and uh, 18 years or older. So it was just majority and competency that were the um, uh, requirements. And, uh, and the other language was, again, very broad uh, about it. So 
Oh, so what were the exact uh, language changes that were made? Specifically, the plain statutory language, there was no requirement as to marital status or sexual preference, nor was there any requirement that there be two parents or that the parents be of opposite gender. People were thinking when they changed it, they were just presuming this would be married couples, but they made it very broad. And so really who the, the agency at the forefront was really DSHS or DCYF. Oh, and, and why was that? Because in the late 80s, they began approving same-sex couples for foster adopt for special needs children. And I remember during, because I did a lot of finalization of DSHS adoptions at that time. And I remember I couldn't find it, but they sought from the attorney general's office uh, in, in our state, uh, some sort of informal decision opinion. And it was just a one page thing. I remember I could not find it, but I remember it basically saying that the statute doesn't uh, restrict this. So, you know, basically we give you permission. And I think it was based on the need for these foster parents and whatnot. But it was when you think of it, that's pretty impressive. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> happened so early so that gave, that gave the green light to dcyf of um pursuing you know pub uh the special needs foster adoptions and so how did that change things with that there were many attorneys um adoption attorneys who started talking about this in in that time and uh, we thought the same um, analysis could approve second parent adoptions. So, and again, we did this very quietly. We, you know, or you may know, you know, there's ex parte uh, where um, most adoptions are finalized, but there you don't know who you're going to get. Uh, if I knew I would uh, get your parents' attorney <laughs> as a commissioner, no problem. But in these early years, uh, we weren't really confident. So we, we always special set the early second parent adoptions before judges who we thought would be open to our interpretation as well as DCYF's interpretation. Can you tell me a little bit about those early hearings? What were they like? So I remember my first second parent adoption matter that we had set in front of a, a judge. I had done a, a little memo about our legal basis for this. And I'll never forget, we were all very nervous you know, going in there. I mean, my clients for sure. And I remember the judge saying, you know, I'm very inclined to approve this, but, and of course we were all, but what she asked for is I want you to go back and all parties 
have MMPIs, full psychological testing. I mean, oh, interesting. we had a social worker report, but the judge wanted as strong a record as possible. My, my clients weren't happy, but anyway, he went past, and the, I think there was a donor as well, uh, who, you know, every, and we had an agreement, everyone was represented by counsel. So we did that and they ultimately approved it. Oh, interesting. So how did things change from there? Things calmed down from that stance uh, to, um, uh, you know, certain judges were approving these. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of how it began in a very quiet way. And um, and then uh, in the early 90s, mid 90s, uh, ex parte uh, department felt like we needed to talk about these second parent adoptions that were happening. Some people were presenting them there. And so um, a couple of us met with them and they, we all agreed uh, to model the procedure for second parent adoptions akin to step parent adoptions. Oh, interesting which was an easier route than they could have uh, suggested because a, uh, a step-parent adoption where you have the biological parent who's consenting to their now spouse to adopt, um, and let's say the biological father had died or uh, consented as well, you know, um, in that instance, you didn't need a full home study. You only needed a post-placement report. Uh, you know, other states, they had required full home studies and various things. So King County um, really uh, went forward in a more productive way for these families, not making extra hoops but modeling it uh, with what what had been a very common thing of uh, procedure of step-parent adoptions. So um, uh, that that's when, if you will, we came out of the closet where there was now officially a way that um, the ex parte department was uh, providing for these adoptions. Well, I just, you know, that's part of this, that's part of a piece here that I'm so interested in is like this intersection or this overlay between like these sort of extra legal routes that yes. people went through yeah. and the legal, right? I mean, both are right. very complex and different and like presented their own challenges, but right. something that I'm so interested in the history of same-sex parenting in in Washington and generally is how folks really had to, it, 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 you, there was, there were, it was just uncharted territory, uncharted territory, right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I have yeah. a couple questions about just like the history you've shared yeah. so far, if you care. Yeah. So um, one, well, just the biggest question is how did you go about flagging friendly judges? You know, who, how did you identify who you thought would be receptive to approving? Well, you know, judges are elected. So there's a lot of information about 
their history, both legally and otherwise. Um, word of mouth, uh, people, we just could find a few uh, who we um, thought would at least be open to uh, the legal basis we were presenting. And, um, uh, but after the um, uh, ex parte set out this uh, arrangement, this procedure, then, you know, you had a choice. But many people still wanted it. See, in ex parte, if you're at all familiar, there's a bit of, you know, you go in, some of the commissioners are great. Some don't even look up, okay, you're a forever family, you know, kind of thing. And at those early days when you couldn't even be a, a domestic partner or marriage, huh, um, we wanted it to be ceremonial, to give a, uh, a rite of passage for these families that they couldn't get through marriage or, you know, um, uh, uh, other ways. So um, we still began to um, special set them in front of uh, judges who were, you know, and sometimes, boy, we had a, a huge crowds that would come for these adoptions. Oh, that's so cool. That's so special. And more and more lesbian uh, attorneys had been appointed or elected to the superior court. And uh, one of my clients um, said, uh, this was early on, and I should remember when, but uh, said they wanted it special set in front of, at that point, Judge Mary Yu. One of the, one of the mothers had been on a board with her or something. So I didn't know Judge Yu had only recently been appointed by Gary Locke, I think, uh, Governor Locke. And I didn't know her. I knew of her, but I didn't know her. So I special set it in front of her. And wow, we were a team. <laughs> oh, how so? It just worked out well. We were just simpatico about making it legal, but making it also a celebratory procedure. Uh, and um, I went up to her afterwards and I said, do you want to do more of these? And she said, absolutely. So I did all for 14 years. I did almost all of my uh, second parent adoptions and other uh, types of adoptions. In uh, I did a lot of uh, foster adoption finalizations uh, in front of her as well, and 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 it was, you know, and it was all before marriage, you know, and uh, even though in what two thousand and three the domestic partnership statute everything but marriage, uh, but uh, even with that, clearly people still needed the adoption. You have full recognition in all, because, as you know, even you know, um, even now, where someone is married, see, in the past, before marriage, before domestic, the only way 
you could get the second mom, the non-biological mom on the birth certificate was through a second parent option. When there was domestic um, uh, partner registration in 2003 and what marriage in 2014, then you could get the non-biological mom on the birth certificate without an adoption because Washington law uh, enabled them to get on it based on the registration and later marriage. Um, but I always said to clients, you don't need an adoption if you know you're never going to leave Washington state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, what's the likelihood of that? Because you're recognized here. Mm -hmm. But if you want to travel, so uh, the because a birth certificate is not a court order. It's an administrative document that is based on our statutes, but it is not a court order. So a birth certificate doesn't have the benefit of the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. And an adoption, of course, decree does. And it is then needs to be enforced and recognized in all states. Oh, and is that what ended up happening? I mean, on a practical level? That didn't happen easily because the first, you know, early years of second parent adoptions, we would have to send the decree if the child happened to be born in a different state and then was living here and we did it here. And there were many states, obviously, who refused to uh, prepare and issue an updated birth certificate. So the, um, oh, uh, you know, Lambda Legal, they, they did uh, litigation in, in many states and they won them because the full faith and credit clause says if a order or decree was appropriately rendered in one state, it has to be enforced even if your laws are different because we're not 50 whatever different countries, you know. So um, that's why many of many people think, oh, I've got my birth certificate. And um, so even now with marriage, but certainly earlier, even if you could get on the birth certificate, we advise that an adoption, you know, was the additional insurance, if you will. Um, okay, so relatedly, I'm thinking a lot, you know, we're talking, you know, there's obviously a, there's an, um, or the way I see it, like, you know, there's so much legal, there's so many hours billed to these issues. <laughs> and I'm thinking about how, from my perspective, like the, you know, the adults and ch and their children who they've adopted who I've been speaking to I'm struck by the fact that most of them are very well resourced you know almost to a person they're all upper middle class families 
Um, usually where both parents, you know, both partners worked and had, you know, mostly white collar jobs. And I'm just thinking about, you know, for folks who didn't have access to resources, was there even an avenue to become a legal parent to your child? Was there a legal aid component to, you know, were there any legal aid orgs in Washington helping folks to get in front of judges? I just, I, you know, I'm thinking about how you really had to have really adept attorneys, (laughs) at least in those early years. And that is out of reach for, for so many people. Yeah. No. Q law. Do you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, They and I haven't I was active with them early on and I haven't stayed as involved. So uh, but early on, I remember doing training for their volunteers who would help uh, pro se and the King County, you know, there is the King County Adoption Services. And I don't know if you, it's, it's, a, okay, it's a department of the Superior Court. And they, at a minimum, what they do is they have to review all the, um, before an adoption is finalized, they have to review all the submitted documents and they contact you if something is amiss then they give a checklist to the commissioner saying everything's okay or they're going to be bringing this okay so they may they make it a little easier for the uh uh the uh uh ex parte commissioner and, and judge um and they do have adoption packets Oh, like for pro se folks. Yeah, yeah, to be pro se. They for all kinds of adoptions. I, I don't know how much um guidance they actually give, uh, uh, but they um they do have packets that where I remember early on you had to modify a lot. It still made it more it didn't still was hard. I hope you appreciated today's conversations with Washington State Supreme Court Justice Mary Yu, attorney and former court commissioner Eric Watness, and advocate and attorney Barbara Wexler. I'm so grateful to each of them for their incredible insight, as well as their compassion and thoughtfulness in engaging with this subject. Until next time. Until next time.